Well, open up your Bibles with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 5. As we continue our way through this book, we are again going to be looking at the same passage we looked at last week. We are working our way through these verses, uh, the larger passage here of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And so again this morning, for context's sake, I want to read that whole passage, uh, but then also want to, this morning, look specifically at verses 15 through 17. So let's read together from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of, the right, of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this precious treasure that you have given to us, that through it we might know you, our God. Lord, that by your Spirit's working through your perfect word, that you accomplish the supernatural in our lives. You, you call from, from death into life, from blindness into seeing from rebellion into obedience. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would accomplish your good purposes through your word in us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Hannah and I took a sort of last-minute whirlwind trip to Lynchburg, Virginia and back. Uh, in the span of just a couple days, and driving there through West Virginia, through Virginia, in the mountains, in the fall, the views were stunning, breathtaking, really. Just the majesty of creation, the beauty of creation. The problem with that was that I was driving, and you can't really take it all in. And there were a few times where Hannah was like, Dad, you must look at the road. You must not look out at the mountains because if I, if I were to really look the way I wanted to look, I would have driven off a cliff 
or into oncoming traffic or something like that. So I didn't get to fully take in the glory that was there to be seen. To do that, you have to actually pull over. You have to stop. You have to get out. You have to look. It takes time. It takes your full attention to really drink in something that grand and that beautiful. You can't just cruise by and really take it in. You get a glimpse of it, but that's all. So I say that to say this. It may seem to you like we are creeping through the book of Romans at a snail's pace, but our goal is not to get through the book of Romans as fast as humanly possible and then move on to some new thing. Our goal is to drink in deeply the riches that this book has for us, to, 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 to take in all that God has, the glories that this book holds. And to do that, we have to take our time. We have to dig down into the text. We can't just cruise on past and take a glance at it while we drive by. But I assure you, it is worth the effort. I trust as we've gone through Romans, uh, you have seen how worth the effort it is for us to take time to meditate on what the Lord has given to us. Superficial study of Scripture, superficial sermons produce weak, shallow, superficial faith. But if we want strong, deep faith that holds up in the midst of life storms, that, that's going to hold up in the midst of whatever the future holds for us, we need to submerge ourselves in the Word of God. We need to be willing to linger. We need to be willing to meditate. It takes effort. One of my favorite quotes regarding studying Scripture comes from John Piper. He says, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. So it is with Scripture. So this passage that we're in right now, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, is really one of the most important sections in the entirety of our Bible. It's the key to interpreting all of the Bible, going backwards and forwards from where it sits in the book. It is the key to understanding all of human history because it sums, it boils down human history for us into very simple terms. Human history all comes down to, it can be understood in terms of two men. That's what Paul shows us here. The first man, Adam, and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. All people throughout history are represented by one of these two men. And if we, if we can begin to understand this, we're going to begin to understand everything that we read in the Bible working our way towards Romans, starting in Genesis, and everything we read after Romans. People are either of Adam's race or Christ's race. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. So both Adam and Jesus were appointed by God to be heads of humanity. Both were to keep a covenant before God, and what each one did in response to that affected everyone whom they represented. That's what Paul's going to be showing us here. Because of the one sin of one man, Adam, all of his descendants became sinners, condemned to death. And now Paul's going to show us that because of the obedience of one man, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, all who belong to him are forgiven of their sins, justified forever, given the gift of his righteousness and eternal life. And so Paul in this passage is comparing and contrasting for us what it is that Adam gives to us and what it is that Christ gives to us. As we saw last week, what does Adam give to us? He gives to us sin. 
He gives to us condemnation. He gives to us death. That's what he brings into the world. But as this passage we're going to be looking at, focusing on this morning, shows us God's plan was not defeated by Adam's sin. God's plan was not thwarted. Neither by the sin of Adam nor by the condemnation and death that came as a result of Adam's sin. But in fact, God's action in the Lord Jesus Christ reversed these curses that came into humanity. And he gives then to his people immeasurable blessings of grace. Jesus says these words in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's what Jesus brings to his people. He says then in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So Adam brings condemnation, death, destruction. Jesus brings righteousness and life, eternal life. And the promise that once I give this eternal life to you, if you are in me, no one can ever, ever, ever take it away from you. This is a glorious promise. These two things couldn't be more different than each other, but we need to ask ourselves right from the start when we see this, are you one of his people? Are you one of his sheep? My sheep hear my voice. They know me. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Are you one of his sheep? Are you united to Christ through faith? Because all who have not trusted savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ are still in Adam. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There's no middle ground here. There's no intermingling here. And we're going to see what it means. What does it entail to be in Adam as Paul compares and contrasts these two men and what we have in them? It's only those who have trusted in Christ alone, who've come to him in repentance and faith, who are in Christ and receive all the blessings that we'll see here that come with that. So we need to keep that framework in mind as we look at this passage. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. So let's look at the contrast. The first is death versus a gift. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so Jesus gives, Paul says here, this, this free gift that he gives to his people because of his perfect obedience, but Adam is just the opposite. Adam trespassed. So here's perfection, perfect obedience on, on Jesus' side, Adam trespassed. This word trespass is not a minor, it's not a small word. It means to fall. That's why we call Adam's sin in the garden the fall. To transgress. Adam's sin in the garden was not an accident. It wasn't just a mistake. It was purposeful and therefore it was grave. It was without excuse. He purposefully crossed the line of God's command into the territory of disobedience and rebellion. He, he trespassed. He transgressed that line. And by that transgression of the one man, Paul says here, many died. So if you remember last week, a tragic progression we saw in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so 
Paul lays out this progression for us of how this worked with Adam's sin. Through, through one man's disobedience, sin gained entrance into the world. Through that sin, death entered into the world. And then the progression goes that that death spread to all men with the result that all dead men sin. That's all that they do. So Paul's emphasizing here a complete solidarity of the whole human race in Adam. Everyone who would come after Adam completely solidified together in Adam. The whole human race in the one trespass of the one man back in the garden. It was created in that moment complete solidarity of everyone who would ever live after that. So how how did Adam accomplish that? How did Adam accomplish solidarity with the whole human race? He used death to do it, is what Paul says. He accomplished this solidarity through death, and not just physical death, but spiritual deadness towards God, which then does eventually put a person in a physical grave. In in Adam, we are united in death. But Paul makes an amazing, emphatic contrast. So in Adam, all humanity united in death, but then he says this, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of uh, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul's Paul's using excessive over-the-top language here to, to draw this contrast. Much more. He says it abounded. These are emphatic words. It would be like uh, if we were writing something and we chose to write in all capital letters or we chose to, to use uh, an exorbitant amount of exclamation points after we've made some statement in writing. That's what Paul does in using this kind of language. And so how does Jesus form solidarity with his people? Adam forms his solidarity with death. Jesus, it says, the grace of God and the free gift is how Jesus forms solidarity. The, the free gift that comes from God's grace. It's, it's a gift that is freely given, from the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ that forms solidarity with him. So Adam uses death, spiritual deadness to God to get his people. Jesus uses a gracious gift to get his people. One man uses death, the other man uses a free gift. One has taken life away, the other one has given Life. These things aren't just sort of different from each other. They're opposite from each other. Are you tracking with that? The two groups of people are opposites also. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. One has nothing but sin, death, condemnation. The other has the unmerited favor of God because of the gift of God's grace. Again, these things aren't just sort of different from each other. They're completely opposite from one another. And you are either one or the other. There's no intermingling here. And so Paul says here, and using this emphatic language, much more so that, that, that it abounded. The, the grace of that one man abounded to many. Paul is using this emphatic language to show us how much greater what Christ has done is than what Adam has done. Literally, the word is that grace superabounds over death. In other words, there's no power struggle here between these two things. It's not two equal forces pulling on humanity in opposite directions. That's not what Paul's saying. He says much more. He says it 
abounded. The specific word abounded is unique to Paul. The, the way that Paul uses it here, he's the only one that uses it. Maybe he made it up. But it literally means superabound, over the top. It's, this word also gets translated because Paul uses it in a couple other places. English translations use words like lavish or overflow to describe this word. So to understand how grace superabounds over death, how it is so much more powerful, we need to understand what it is that both men needed to do in order to form their solidarity with people, because that's going to help us understand how much more powerful the power of grace is than the power of death. So consider first Adam. Where, where did he form his solidarity with people? Well, Adam was created sinless in a perfect garden in paradise. And he was given a command. Not, not 10 commands, not you know, 613 commands like we have in the totality of the Old Testament. No, a command. But then he broke that command of God. He rebelled against God. Paul says here he transgressed. And it was in that moment, as we saw last week, that death entered into the world immediately. Death entered into the world of men. And right then, in that moment, it spread to all men who were in Adam. It was done. It was accomplished. Not, not one single person who would be born after Adam had the opportunity to like decide for themselves whether they were going to be born under death. It just spread to all men. It spread so easily in that moment through the whole human race. Only one sin, consider what Paul's saying here, one sin mysteriously but easily spread to all men and all men died. So through Adam, death easily reigned. It's, it's like dropping a rock. It's just going to easily, naturally fall to the ground. There's no effort involved there. You just let go and the rock does what it's going to do. And that solidarity under sin that just so easily spread to all men, that solidarity under sin and death cemented Adam's people together in death. They're bound together in it, in Adam. That's how Adam formed his people. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, didn't form solidarity with his people in a perfect garden, did he? And it was not an easy process. It was not a natural process for Jesus to do this. If Jesus was going to form a new people in solidarity with him, there was only one place to get people. Where were all the people that ever came after Adam? They were in Adam. They were cemented together in death in Adam. Those were the only people there were for Jesus to get for his people. The only way he could get a people to be his people would be to break them free from that concrete slab of solidarity in death that all mankind was in. So unlike the fall, which is just like dropping a rock and it just naturally happens, this is not an easy thing to do. What, what kind of power must be in grace to do that? To break people free. Imagine I gave you a box on your way out this morning and I said, hey, before you leave, you need to fill this box with rocks. But then we got outside and I didn't let you go into the field. I didn't let you get them from the parking lot. I said, no, well, you need to go out on the road 
And you need to separate each individual little rock from the cement of the road. Just one by one. To fill. I don't want you breaking chunks one rock at a time out of the road and use that to fill your box right off of Main Street. How, how difficult would that process be? It's far easier to cement pieces together than it is to break the rocks apart one at a time. And so this is what makes the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, so much greater than the power of death that cemented us together in Adam. It's how he formed his people. It's what he had to do to do that. This is the unrestrained abundance in the gift by the grace of Jesus Christ. Consider then what it means to be in Christ and to no longer be in Adam. Do you understand the goodness of Jesus Christ to do that? It's, it's mercy. It's not that we deserved this and he was like, I have to, I'm compelled. No, it was just mercy. It was just grace. Do you understand the power of Jesus Christ to go and do that? Who could do that? How could anyone do that? that? That he would, through no merit of yours, deliver you out of your solidarity in death with a gift. As we sang this morning, what wondrous love is this that would do this, that would rescue? Well, what specifically is this gift that Paul's talking about? He already told us in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this gift that Jesus gives, that is so much more powerful than death, it is justification. It is to be credited with Christ's own righteous status before a holy God bought with his own precious blood. Justification by faith alone is not just something we celebrate every October 31st on Reformation Day and we thank God that we're not Roman Catholic. Although, thank God that we're not Roman Catholic. It's not just that we go, okay, this point of theology has helped us recover the true gospel. Justification by faith alone is the gift that breaks you free from the solidarity of death that you have in Adam. That's how he does it. He justifies. He gives that gift of his grace. So that's the first distinction Paul makes between Adam, what we have in Adam and what we have in Christ is, is death in Adam and the gift in Christ. Second, condemnation versus justification. Look at verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Paul, Paul's using courtroom language here, as he often does. The judgment for Adam's sin brought condemnation, but the free gift brought justification. So Adam committed one sin in the garden, and the judgment fell down from heaven, condemnation. That judgment fell hard, not, not just on Adam, but on all who would come after him, 
So in Adam, we have solidarity, not only through death, but through condemnation. All men cemented together in Adam in this concrete slab of condemnation. But what about Jesus? Paul says the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now what on earth is that supposed to mean? Adam's one sin brought death and condemnation, united us all together in this cement slab of sin and death and judgment. And ever since that one sin, there have been many, many, many more trespasses, many more sins. Everyone who has ever lived sins all the time. Everyone who is in Adam, in fact, only sins. And yet Jesus doesn't stand over that mass of sinners and look down and demand of them, (coughs) hey, sinner, save yourself. Rescue yourself out of that unbreakable cement. Free yourself from that. And if you do that, then perhaps I will act and make you mine once you have freed yourself from that. No, that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? Paul told us in in Romans chapter (coughs) 4, verse 5, Romans 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The the gospel is not Jesus looking down on us saying, do. The, The gospel is that you have no hope of saving yourself. You have no hope of rescuing yourself from that. You are to use Paul's language here, which is God's language, ungodly. That defines you. But Jesus comes to you there in your bondage to sin and death, there in that concrete slab of condemnation in Adam, and he says, I have a gift for you. And this free gift results in our justification, our being freed are being rescued, are being reconciled to God. So one group is under condemnation, cemented in death in Adam. The other group is under a declaration of righteousness. They are cemented together now to Jesus in justification. Jesus took upon himself our condemnation by his death on the cross. And for those for whom he died, we're freed from our condemnation freed from our bondage under the reign of sin and death because he was condemned in our place and he has given us his righteousness. So we are now cemented together in Christ, in that righteousness, in freedom, in life, in justification. Third then, we see enslaving in Adam versus reigning in Christ. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We've seen Paul using that language here in this passage as we looked at it last week. Death enslaved us. We were dominated by it. We were under its reign. And Paul says here, you see that word, if, For if, he says, if that's true, if it's true 
that men are enslaved in sin and death. If that is true, then how much more will this other thing be true? Well, what's the other thing that Paul says here? How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's a long sentence. You often have to do this with Paul's sentences where you have to stop after you read it and go, now what did I just read? (laughs) What did that mean? Let's break down what he says. What's the subject of this sentence? Those. How much more will those... Those who? How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness? Now, what's the main verb in this sentence? How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign? That's the verb here. So, in Adam, death reigns, but in Christ, something else will reign. And Paul doesn't say here, death reigned, but now life reigns. We might expect him to say that, but that's not what he says. He says something way better than that, Christian, way better than that. Again, who's the subject of this sentence? Those who've received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Us, Christians, we, It is we who are in Christ who will reign in life through him. Isn't that amazing? That's better than saying death once reigned, but now life reigns. He says death once reigned, but now you will reign in life. The the idea is that as we were once cemented together in bondage to sin and death in Adam, Jesus didn't come and demand that we break ourselves free. He didn't come with an eyedropper full of grace and sort of delicately drop it on us so that we could free ourselves just to help us a little bit, give us a nudge in the right direction. He unleashed a waterfall, a tsunami of his grace upon us, an excessive, lavish, superabounding abundance of grace. And that pulled us up out of our bondage to death. That placed us in Christ such that we will reign with him eternally. This is such good news. As as certain as it was that you were in death, here's Paul's logic here, as certain as it was that you were in death unable to save yourself, which is certain, that is the case for all people, Paul says it's even more certain that if you have been saved by Christ, you will live. You will remain in him. You will reign with him. There's no words to describe the certainty that Paul is trying to give us here in what he is saying. That this future reality that his people will reign with him is so certain that Paul says it is much more certain than something that already happened in the past. Isn't that amazing? That, that would be like us standing here today and saying as certain as it is that the Revolutionary War happened, it is much more certain that you will reign forever with Christ in his kingdom. We would say, well, how much more certain can you get than something that's already done? That's Paul's point. It's ridiculously more certain that you will live and reign with Christ if you are in Christ, if he has saved you. It's mind-blowing. It's astounding. It's astounding. 
what he is saying. And it's our union with Christ that makes it so sure. How can this be so sure? How can Paul be so sure? How can he be so over the top in his language? It's a done deal. It's guaranteed. How can he be so sure? It's because of our union with Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Union with him in his death, in his crucifixion. In other words, you can never go back. You've died now with Christ. You can't go back to who you were. You can't get back into that cement in Adam again. You have died with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are in him now and forever. Not only can you not get back into Adam's cement slab, you are cemented into Christ. You're in him now. When Christ is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It is sure. You will appear with him in glory. If your life is hidden in him, you will reign with him. We can't even comprehend that. Can you even comprehend a promise of that sure? How excessively good is the gospel that we can't wrap our minds around the statement that, that we get repeatedly in Scripture? This union we have with Christ is unbreakable. Nothing can take it away from us. Nothing can separate it from us. Nothing can separate us from our union with Christ and his love. That's good news when we have an election coming up on Tuesday and everyone we hear from every side and every corner is telling us that whatever happens in this election, it's probably true that the world's going to end. It may mean God has forgotten us. It may mean the apocalypse is now upon us. Friends, we need this promise from the gospel that we are in Christ, inseparably in him. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, verse 36, and this was just a coincidence that this was our psalm that we read this morning. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, in this world, we have trouble. In this world, we bear the consequences of a world that has fallen into condemnation and death in Adam, do we not? Is that enough to separate us from the love of God? Is that enough to rip us out of that cement of being in Christ? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither life, death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, there is no sweeter promise that you will ever find anywhere. There's no better offer. There's no greater hope. But it's for those who are in Christ, not for those who are in Adam. Again, there's no overlap between these two things. They're opposites. So are you in Christ or are you in Adam? If you are not in Christ, in other words, if you have not trusted in him savingly, if your life is still marked by sin and disobedience and self-centeredness, do you understand that the gospel says your biggest problem before God is that you are dead spiritually? That's your biggest issue. You don't need to be saved from unfulfilled dreams from unmet hopes, you need to be made alive because you're dead. That deadness rules you now. You're cemented into it. It will result in a physical grave one day, but far worse is the judgment of condemnation that has been rendered on all who are dead to God in such a way. You're in Adam under the reign of sin and death, hopelessly bound, cemented in, unable to save yourself, there is only one hope. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he alone who has the power over sin. It is he alone who has the power over death and the grave. He's the one that pours out grace in such abundance as to free a person from that solidarity and sin and death. He is the one who comes to sinners one by one, breaks our chains, who breaks us free from that concrete slab of condemnation, justifies us before God, crediting to us his own perfect righteousness. And then on top of all of that, God rewards us according to that righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Christ that we couldn't earn, that we don't deserve, but it's only ours because of a free gift, and God rewards us according to that perfect righteousness. And he does it for what reason? Because of his own grace and mercy. Because of his own love. Let me close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon from a sermon he preached on this passage. He said, grace by its very nature is not a proper gift for the righteous and deserving, of which there are none, but for the undeserving and sinful. God imparts his gracious salvation to people whom he regards as lost and condemned, as those who have no claim on him whatsoever, to whom nothing but his free favor can bring deliverance. He saves them not because he perceives that they have done anything good or have hopeful traits of character, because they resolve to aspire to something better, but simply because he is merciful and delights to exercise his grace and manifest his free favor and infinite love. Friends, this is our God. This is his salvation, and how great is this salvation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we stand amazed at your grace. We stand in wonder of your great salvation. 
Lord, that you would take those who were in Adam, those who were bound in this sin under a condemna- uh, judgment of condemnation, those who, who though willfully sinned and rebelled against you, who were your enemies, who hated you, that you would choose to give to us the free gift of your grace to justify us, to give us the gift of saving faith, to cause us to turn to your son, Jesus Christ, for his death to be efficacious for us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to pull us out of that, that solidarity in Adam and death, and to place us in Christ, where you uphold us and keep us. Lord, your promises to us, which are so astounding, we can't fully wrap our minds around these things. Truly no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the great things that God has prepared for those who love him. Lord, thank you that you have revealed by your spirit to us sufficient that we can trust in you, hope in you, that we can be steadfast and faithful in these days, trusting in your promises, the grace that you have shown and the grace that you have promised. So Lord, we rest in you, we rejoice in you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be faithful. And I pray for any that, that are hearing my voice, Lord, that are in Adam. Lord, that you would shower upon them the same grace that you have shown to undeserving sinners like me. That you would rescue them and save them and justify them and make them your own. For your name's sake, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.